0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Beyond Prisons. I am one of your hosts, Brian Nam Sonnenstein. I just wanted to give a content warning at the beginning of this episode, which includes conversations about sexual violence. If you need to skip this one, we totally understand. Please do what you need to do to take care of yourself.
1: But I'm excited about this one. What did you think of this article?
0: I thought it was great. I think... um... I was thinking about it while I was reading it, but also right before we hopped back on today about how there's a lot of threads in here that we have touched on uh, over the years, but I feel like a lot of our focus has been more around like, like this, this article is about like early America, right? So like um, sort of the transition from uh, you know, like a colonial rule of law uh period to you know uh the establishment of the United States of America, whereas I feel like a lot of the things that we 've talked about have been more like after that, like closer mm-hmm. to the civil war you know we 've talked about convict leasing and and sort of the evolution of slavery um into the modern uh penitentiary or penal system, and I think that this was a a good way to take like a step back further. And, you know, we can get into it when we talk about this, but I think um, what I like about these kinds of articles is that it kind of reminds you where like hegemonic ideas that don't always seem to be like totally clear or scrutable in the current moment are, you know, like uh, a lot of things that people might understand about the system our our current system of incarceration and the logic or the rationality behind it i don't know if they would identify as having roots in like this article s- speaks to like manhood and the conception of manhood in that time um as it really does i mean it's still it's all the same shit it's just like the the original like very clear underpinnings have either like shifted or they've been submerged or become so hegemonic that they just exist and feel natural, I think, to a lot of people without necessarily thinking about, um, you know, uh, that that dimension of it. Um, and that's not to say that, like, the visible aspects of that dimension don't persist. Like, I don't it's not like I don't want to go 100 percent in that direction because, you know, obviously, especially with a lot of what's happening with the criminalization of trans people, for for example, right now, um, you know, gender is a very, uh, clear and present aspect of the system um, uh, and tool, you know, of of conformity around um, gender and and heteropatriarchy and things like that. Um, but it's just interesting how much of the way that the system works and is designed was specifically to maintain those kinds of uh, orders and structures and relationships. Mm-hmm. And now we just sort of you know, the way people talk about it, it's more like, oh, no, that's because of like safety or you know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's morphed over time. So I don't know that that was sort of um, that was sort of the the high level feeling I had about the article. What about you? I mean, I know that you've taught this article. Uh, maybe we should say a little bit, maybe we should name it and talk yes,
1: about I was what gonna, it's about. I wanted to let you finish your, your train of thought. Yeah. Because, um, the article is titled, uh, it's a book chapter, uh, Penitence for the Privileged, Manhood, Race, and Penitentiaries in Early America by Mark E. Kahn. It's in the book, Prison Masculinities. Uh, edited by Dan Sabo, uh, Terry A. Coopers, and Willie London. And apologies uh, on the front end, if I mispronounced any of your names, please let us know. Um, but yeah, I've, I've talked this article um, a few times, and um, I think it really speaks to, it, as you said, where, where do these ideas come from? right? And how are they perpetuated? So the ideas that we're going to be exploring today in the article, which the the, the author talks about, um, include uh, linking the concept of manhood to the language of liberty in very specific ways. And when we talk about, you know, like what's happening currently you need to know where the ideas came from, right? To really have a sense of, you know, how these things happen, how they manifest themselves. Um, it This article was listed in the black and pink syllabus. I don't know if it's still on their website. I know that they've revamped their website. Um, but it was originally, that's where I got this article um, or this chapter from, or the suggestion for this chapter um, from, and it was included in their, um, you know, prison abolition, like their prison abolition 101. And I think it is a foundational text, right? If you want to understand prison abolition, you need to understand more than just the current, the contemporary yeah. um functions of it, right? The, the right. contemporary institutions and how they operate. Um, a couple of other things uh, to kind of ground and situate the conversation is um, how the use of gendered language uh, really was used to urge men into battle and linking right. that idea of, you know, a very specific and narrow idea of manhood to militarism. If that doesn't start resonating, like, <laughs> sounding alarm bells for folks, I'm not sure what will. Um, also, what ways uh, does this definition of manhood contribute to the social order, to this idea mm-hmm. of social order? Um, Fast forwarding, and I'm just giving you some highlights from uh, from the text. Um the author also talks about how Black men were perceived as inherently unmanly due to their lack of individual independence and control over their families. And thinking about what the consequence of that idea has been generations upon generations upon generations later, right? Um The author also talks about and is very much concerned with um, the ways that Black men were thought to not be, that they couldn't be rehabilitated. Uh, And uh, and that has implications for how we think and what we're talking about in terms of the PIC today, right? So understanding that these ideas were- there, very early on in the colonies, right? <laughs> will help you understand what is happening today, right? Um, how did the, fa- the founders really think about, um, or why were they so obsessed with this idea of order, right? Yeah. Order, especially among men, right? And how that was used um, in combination with the rhetoric of liberty to justify right um the all so many different things that were happening not only then but that continue to happen today right um the author also talks about um the views that um that were prevalent at the time uh, around women um and um how the founders. Right, thought about ideas of sexual violence. Right, so we'll be talking about that. So, uh, trigger warning um, for folks that are listening mm-hmm. um, that we will be discussing um, sexual violence in in this, um, and also how you know the founding fathers saw sexual violence as antithetical um to the kind of civility and gentility right like mm-hmm. gentlemen did not do that like real men did not engage in sexual violence right mm-hmm. um, and he he addresses that and i think that that's an important um idea to to talk about and then he goes on from there to talk about some other things uh and i'm listing these um broad uh broad things from the from the chapter, in order, in order that that yeah. they up in the chapter, um, just for for clarity. Um, he also discusses the uh, the ways that same sex relationships were viewed as um, a subversion of the social order, um, and how what the consequences of those you know the, what the consequences were for people who engaged in those relationships right and the shift that happened from you know thinking about things like sodomy as being a sin against god to being a sin against um the order of nature right Mm -hmm. and that's very much an 18th century um
0: reproduction of the family yeah
1: absolutely um I think another thing to talk about, and this is just for folks who are, want like an overview. Of, yeah, a, just to give a it, taste of it. Yeah, we're going to go in um, and uh, discuss some specific passages and what whatnot. But um, he also discusses um, the shift in public, between public meaning and private acts. Right. So there were things and how those things contribute to the kind of discourse uh, around dominant norms of manhood. So this idea of manhood was really like manhood. Right. It's, it's, it's right. I can't take it seriously. It's like manhood. Right. Um, like men should be pissed. Right. Like <laughs> really, If y'all aren't upset, I don't know what to tell you. Like, because this is. Like th- this makes y'all look r- bad, like yeah. just bad and ridiculous. I mean, we knew this before reading this, but this really does, you know, lay it out. Um, he talks about how white men were really measured their worth by distancing themselves from any kind of dependency. Yes, right? um, t- particularly dependency on the state. Oh, and we could talk ad nauseum about that.
0: Yeah, that's um, a big one.
1: Right. <laughs> Right. And um, also the relationship between family governance, patriarchal authority, Republican benevolence, um, small R, right, Um, Republican lowercase um, and access to citizenship and how this contributes to the kind of social stability that they were striving for in the 18th century. So some of the. the top by you know some of the main things that, that I pulled out. A couple of other things just to kind of um bring it home. He talks about the purpose of um quarantining criminality and the emergence of prisons and the effect that this had on society, you know, at that time. Um and the ways that leaders Um, government officials, what have you, really wanted the public, right? Because, and we'll get into the history of this, um, public executions and, um, you know, flogging, whatever, uh, those things were elicited sympathy from viewers, right? From people in attendance. And that's the opposite of what officials wanted. They wanted... (laughs) officials that were carrying these things out to be honored and to be respected so by taking all of this stuff behind closed doors and making it obscure from the public made it seem like okay so now they can't sympathize or empathize with criminals so those are some of the things that we're going to talk about and um yeah um do you have any anything to add
0: No, I think that's right. And, you know, the piece ends with a a conversation about how these different threads, you know, over time sort of developed into a a two-tiered criminal justice system, as they put it, sort of the entanglement between, I guess, race, uh, gender, and citizenship. The like you said, you know, sort of moving away from uh, not entirely, but but somewhat uh, from only justifying things through um, an obedience or disobedience to God. To what does what is an American? Well, an American is specifically a white American male. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, those concepts of race and gender were intertwined with citizenship and the understanding of, you know, in this quote unquote, new land. I mean, we know it wasn't a new land, but you know, in the in the way that they're thinking about it, what is an American, you know, an American is, uh, like you said, a self sufficient, independent, white male, uh, who is the head of a family unit who manages a family. And yeah, and who obeys the law ultimately mm-hmm. and and i think that deference to law and that obedience to law gets back to what you were saying at the very beginning in terms of militarism um you know a lot of this uh use of the prison and its change over time from early america is rooted in control and conformity uh among the population into what this mold of of an of an american again read not just american but a white American male, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what, what that meant. Um, and yeah, those, th- again, those three pillars being, um, that they, they call back to throughout the piece, this idea of, uh, individualism, you know, self-dependency or versus like a dependency on the state or on, on others. Um, you know, the family in terms of being the head of a family and managing, uh, a family in that regard. And, um, being a good citizen through obedience to law.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's start at the <clears throat> beginning. And I, I'm just going to piggyback off of what you just yeah, said. Like, Well, how convenient, right? <laughs> like, how <laughs> fucking convenient. Because it's like Black men, Black people were enslaved. So they were not permitted any right. of these things, right? So they didn't have that access. So then you take and create this idea, but this ideology, right? And then you operationalize that in terms of the institutions, right? So when when people say that racism is baked into America, this is what they mean, right? right? This is what they mean, that the ideas and the policies, the laws that were created were inherently racist because they were constructed this way, right? It's like... The actions
0: taken, you know, like not just institutions or ideas, but literally the actions carried out uh, were imbued with with that. Absolutely.
1: Um, Um, And that at the time, right, this idea combining this idea of manhood um, to that of militarism was really seen as innovative. Right. But the innovation comes from, you know, this uh, combining it with ideas of um, self-discipline, you know, in the exercise of liberty. Right. And using that to deter or to punish criminal activity. um, And then thinking about how, you know, this relates to the depriving people of their freedom. Right. In terms of, you know, imprisoning them like this was seen as cutting edge mm-hmm. shit. Right? So they're borrowing all this stuff from enlightenment thinkers. And they're saying, "Oh, Enlightenment criminologists have come up with this. Wow, my goodness, what great ideas!" Let's just copy. I know.
0: Two hundred (laughs) and fifty years later, people are still saying these are new, innovative ideas. By the way,
1: (laughs) they're they're just regurgitating the same playbook, right? So it's like if you don't know where the ideas from the playbook come from, it's really hard. I mean, you can argue, um, but it's just what's the point, right? So it's like having a sense of the historical roots of these ideas really illustrates just how fucked up <laughs> having yeah. prisons today really is. And when well, you look yeah. at how communities and families and all of these people have been um, affected, um, destroyed in a lot of ways, um, it, it, it just, it, it's angering it's angering. I don't know. It's like, it's been a couple of years since I've read this, um, this mm-hmm. piece and rereading it for this. I was just, I felt my blood boiling um, in part because I could see a lot of the politicians, um, you know, who we're talking about, um,
0: <laughs> right?
1: you know, standing at a podium talking about real men and, you know, it's like family values and and that kind of stuff. And you're like, wow like this is just so exhausting right like it's the same tired playbook
0: without jumping too far ahead I think when we talk about like quote-unquote historical roots you know especially when it relates to prison I think a lot of times people think that like oh well it was just like the ideas were wrong but like over time we got rid of those ideas and we're still doing the same practices but for like you know, different reasons or, or the practices have changed too. You know, I, I know a lot of people, um, you know, sort of great against the historical comparisons because it's like, okay, well we learned and, and we've changed. But I think one of the things that really comes through in this article is how much like, you know, like you can take the idea of, of like isolating people just like, you know, taking them out of their communities and out of their families and locking them up, like how much that was very specifically an a, a tactic, a response uh, to elicit, again, this very particular <clears throat> kind of conformity, uh, you know, and and sort of control and discipline. And then later that same exact practice, they were like, OK, well, actually, it's not about that. It's about uh, you know, penitence and rehabilitation. And, you know, you need that, that time away and and sort of that dysfunction and the dissolution of your family and the torture worse than death of like losing the bonds to your community in order to like have some, I don't know, fucking epiphany and and come out of it. Uh, Like, you know, thanks to the the Quakers for that uh, idea. Um, And then later into our common era, it's like, you know, I feel like, you know, like conservatives, a lot of conservatives I think would, probably still buy that bullshit but even among like a more liberal set the idea has more to do with oh no like this is important for like the safety of our communities and oh you know like there's all these other reasons why we need to do this and that this is the only way that we can address certain problems and it is a way that we are addressing certain problems uh even though it's the exact same tools that had very particular that were deployed for very particular peculiar reasons in that time and we're still doing it and going through the motions over and over and over through hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just a matter of like oh uh you know like a butterfly flapped their wings 250 years ago and like this is the system we have now. It's like no, we're doing much the same exact thing and we just keep changing sort of the justifications and and the reasons why we're okay with it over time. We're not even changing the actual practices, you know? Yeah. Like you can't even yeah. say that. Um, so I just, I wanted to point that out in terms of just that conversation around, you know, historical roots when we're talking about, um, prisons and, and abolition and things like that, that it really is that much of a connective tissue. It's not even something more ideological, you know, it's like very Mm -hmm. material.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm always side-eyeing anybody who's like, you know, history doesn't matter downplaying, you know, the, the. History of things, in part because we obscure history and history is largely told by the winners, right? So <laughs> it's like, whose history are we discussing here? So um the reason why I appreciate and use this article is um, because it's it's very clear in laying out that connective tissue that often gets lost in conversation, right? Because while some things have changed, duh, a lot of things have not changed, right? Right. And we're coming back and we're seeing a kind of replay of many of the things that were happening a long time ago. And just because it happened a long time ago doesn't mean that it's not happening again, right? We talk about history and repeating itself and blah, 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 right? You don't study it. You don't know anything about it. It's very easy to be dismissive about history, right? But it's like, the the one thing that we don't talk enough about are notions of manhood, um, misogyny, male supremacy, sexual violence. I mean, we do talk about sexual violence, and many of us, um, you know, uh, spend a great deal of time talking about these other issues. But we don't see this very kind of public conversation around a lot of these issues, right? There seems to be a reaction to policies that are happening now, right? And those things are happening. They're coming rapid fire very quickly. Right. When we look at, you know, Mississippi, Florida, you know, a lot of other states around the country, Texas, Arkansas, you name it. Right. Like this, this isn't new. This isn't new. This is the playbook. Right. So, um, I mean, this chapter is not the playbook. What he does <laughs> right. he analyzes, let right. me be very clear. He analyzes that situation and he lays out the, the history of how these things were connected and how they were deployed, um, in terms of you know and being used to manage and control black people and at the time, specifically black men, but also and this should not be overlooked, right, to control white men as well, right? Because it's like, you know, a lot of white men, are oh, freedom, freedoms, right? We're all free and, you know, all this, whatever. I don't know. What do men talk about, Brian? Um <laughs> I don't oh, know I, I'm really serious.
0: the wrong guy <laughs> I'm really no. serious
1: about this. but Then there's all the, all the other stuff that comes up. Yeah. Um, let me read a quick passage from, yeah, you know, just it. from the first page and um, there's actually two passages, but I don't, I'm not going to read them both. I encourage you to read the entire uh, thing and I think we can share the link. It was shared publicly um, before. I don't know if it's still available as PDF. So maybe we should check. Um, on that. But he says, quote, in general, the founders defined manhood as a combination of individual independence and family responsibility. They saw this mix as a positive source of social order and stable citizenship. They also relied on it to deter white men from engaging in criminal conduct and to punish and rehabilitate white convicts. Prison reformers in an early republic threatened to deprive lawbreakers of their manly freedom and dignity by incarcerating them and isolating them from their families in newly conceived penitentiaries. Men who were actually convicted of crimes and imprisoned were encouraged to use their isolation as an opportunity to repent and reform in order to regain their manhood and liberty.
0: I mean, there's there's a lot that stands out. I think you know one thing, both in this section, in the beginning, from the beginning, and throughout. I think that I kept coming back to was, uh, and you know, something that we've talked about on the show before. But again, thinking about the early American period and, and how it relates to today is the construction of individuality and the dismissal of dependence as um, const- constitutive of being. An American, again, read like a white mm. American male, right? Because I think you can see how that spins off over the years into, uh, you know, a very convenient system for capitalism and for neglect in the management of, of specific populations and aspects of the labor pool. Um, I think it's interesting how much sort of not just, again, not just the promotion of the idea of individual of individuality, but like the state's coercive power and disciplinary mm-hmm. power to enforce, uh, you know, a, a, an independent um, way of living that I think in many ways, just like a lot of what we're going to talk about, is inherently destructive of community ties and from sort of any ability to really think about, uh, you know, a, like a, a communal responsibility or mutual responsibility to each other um you know obviously uh i feel like uh you know also very formative to like a very hierarchical worldview right because you are either independent or you're not <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and if you're not mm-hmm. then you're you're in the the criminal class and so on and so forth so i don't know that was one thing you know this thread with individualism as being um, constitutive of being an American man, um, you know, I think, uh, was one thing that I was thinking about. What about you?
1: One of the things that stands out to me. And one of the things that I try to raise when I'm teaching this, um, piece is talking about the racial limits, um, to deterrence and rehabilitation, right? So if deterrence and rehabilitation is only for white men, that means that everyone else gets to go to prison right, and gets to be deprived of any of the other things that they were deprived of previously by design due to slavery, right? (laughs) So if Black men, you know, then were seen as inherently unmanly due to this lack of individual independence and um, control of their families, then you can create policies and laws that say, well, there's no need for us to focus on rehabilitation because they lack this thing that they were calling, quote unquote, manly freedom to begin with, right? And fast forward 250 years and we think about the lack of programs in most facilities, right? (laughs) We look at who is currently incarcerated. There's no need to offer programming rehabilitative or otherwise because we, not we, you and I, but, you know.
0: Right. People.
1: People (laughs) as um, not worth rehabilitating, right? Right. Because they lack all of these things. But it's like, I feel like this is almost the quiet part being said out loud. that happens on every news, you know, story. Whenever there's a police killing or anything else that happens in this country right um that as it relates to um to black people that um you know it's like it get, there's all of this coded language that gets created as a way to not actually talk about exactly the thing right so it's like we're going we can talk about back then manly freedom right? And manly freedom was code for, then Black people don't get to be rehabilitated, just right. throw them all in prison, right? And that's part of what he's getting at. This idea of male licentiousness, I thought was also, I mean, I just think that word is, it, it's an interesting word, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. i right. that, right? But and going back to what i said in in the kind of overview at the beginning um this obsession that the founders had with order right among men right and this rhetoric of liberty that was being used you know throughout um the colonies in terms of you know creating um institutions because jails were not really a thing yeah. right jails were not really a thing this was this pre-jails right Um, and how did you, how were they punishing, you know, people? So people were being punished through kind of coercive systems through their communities and, you know, um, through religion, but now shaming shaming this other, you know, this, um, the, these other ideas, they were not fans of like the, the new kind of newfangled evangelicalism that was happening. Um, at the time, because they thought that that was leading men into kind of leading men astray, right? Mm-hmm. That It was leading, as as the author puts it, to um, spiritual individualism and sexual anarchy. And I was just like... <laughs> 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 I mean, if I was a dude, if I was a citizen, like I, I would be pissed. Like, I would just be like... <laughs> like... <laughs>
0: to emphasize your point i think um you know it talks about how in this period like shortly after uh the the revolution and shortly after the enlightenment um period when there are sort of these feelings of of liberty and freedom in the sense of like men you know being on the street and being like hostile and violent towards women and and like you said licentiousness like the, the state in this period is trying to sort of uh, take that energy and funnel it back into the state for its own purposes for militarism, like you said, mm-hmm. right? And so in order to do that um, very specifically is targeting this through the use of the prison. Um, and I think that that, um, uh, I think that that, sort of understanding of, like, the context in which this is happening as well, like you were saying, you know, around changing attitudes towards religion as well, um, you know, but also, like, these new feelings of liberty and freedom. And, you know, I think now, uh, when we talk about liberty and freedom, we have sort of this, like, cute idea about it in America, whereas in this period, like, when they're talking about liberty, they're talking more about, like, Men acting out and and behaving in ways that are not like you said earlier, like Gentile, you know, or like, uh, you know, not having that sort of like aristocratic air to it and needing to discipline people using the state into those behaviors and into self disciplining themselves out of fear of being brought into that system, um, which, as you mentioned, didn't work so great uh, because it engendered sympathy to a lot of the people who then saw people getting flogged in the streets and and so on and so forth. Um,
1: Absolutely. Do you mind reading that passage there? Um, It's at the bottom of, um, it's right under the heading, Male Licentiousness.
0: Consider the young men in post-revolutionary New York City, who constituted, quote, crowds of bloods, who lounged on city sidewalks and, affecting the contemptuous stance of the aristocratic libertine, tossed provocative remarks at any single woman who passed, end quote. These young rakes were known for their aggressive sexuality and their tendency to make contempt for women a, quote, emblem of high style, end quote. Some of them went beyond provocative words to violent deeds, only to be charged with attempted rape or rape, both in quotes. Attempted rape referred to coercive sexual acts up to and including forcible penetration. Rape, the more serious charge, involved penetration and ejaculation. Legislators had two concerns. First, they wanted to reduce the number of single mothers and bastard children who made claims on the public treasury. Second, they believed that the crime of rape was rooted in, quote, the sudden abuse of a natural passion and, quote, perpetrated in a frenzy of desire. Rape indicated that liberty without self restraint resulted in abusive, frenzied actions that were inconsistent with liberal reason and Republican order what are your thoughts on that the part that really stands out to me in this is the the part where they talk about the two concerns that the legislature legislators had about this right because Mm -hmm. it's not just the conduct and what we might think of it today but what did they care about in the moment and what were they trying to use the coercive power of the state to do one was to reduce the number of single mothers and bastard children who made claims on the public treasury. if you haven't heard anything like that in the last 30 years i mean <laughs> like that is I, I, I'm like, yes you know um and again we're talking about not just that the legislators didn't want that to happen but that the prison was used to enforce that mm-hmm. you know um because i i you know again like and we'll talk about this probably with other things when we talk about something being criminalized like for example, uh, you know, again, just I'm I'm using this example, because it's so heavily in the news right now, If we're talking about the ability of trans people to use public facilities. Uh, we're not just talking about passing a law that says that illegal, that's illegal. It's about how do you enforce that law? Well, you use the prison, you use the police to do it. Like, we're talking about using the prison uh, as a way to reduce the number of single mothers and bastard children, you know, or to enforce the the heteropatri- heteropatriarchy ideal of a family who made claims on the public treasure, the class dimension uh, mm-hmm. of this. And then secondly, they believed the second thing that the legislators were concerned with was the belief that the crime of rape was rooted in the sudden abuse of natural passion and perpetrated in a frenzy of desire. So nowhere in this, uh, is the concern for the very physical, traumatic, emotional harm brought on the person who experiences the rape, uh, but on the way that the act of rape is sort of a lack of self-control, a momentary mm-hmm. lapse of self-control um, that, you know, men really need to discipline themselves against mm-hmm. uh, and, and to sort of have more control over. Um it-
1: To put it, you know, to put it in more modern terms, boys will be boys. Uh,
0: Yeah, exactly. That's what that
1: is, right? That's the boys will be boys and oopsie, right? They just need, they just, bad. you bad, you did a bad thing and all you have to do is, you know, kind of repent.
0: It wasn't who you really are. You it's, know,
1: it's not who you really are. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like all right. of these things. And we've all heard uh, heard of them. Um, I wanted to share this passage. Um, yeah, go for that's it. On, on the on page 23. Um, He writes, American leaders also associated same sex relationships with subversion. Same sex relationships represented a, quote, potential in the lustful nature of all men and a potential for disorder in the cosmos, end quote. During the uh, the 18th century, public perception transformed sodomy from a mortal sin against God into a passion against the order of nature, and therefore an abuse of natural laws that regulated the peace, government, and dignity of the state. Why did private sexual acts among consenting adults have public meaning? John Winthrop's explanation was the enduring one. He argued that same-sex relationships, same-sex relations, quote, tended to the frustrating of the ordinance of marriage and the hindering of the generation of mankind, end quote. Like the libertine, the sodomist separated sexual pleasure from marital restraint. Unleash passion and licentiousness, and thereby undermine men's commitment and conformity to stable family life.
0: What do you think of that? Oh, I mean, ag- again, I think what I f- what I feel like is normally spoken of and talked about as an error in thought, mm-hmm. in ideology and belief, is made is crystallized into the very material with this, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the ordinance of marriage and the hindering of the generation of mankind so the institution of marriage and its real life implications in terms of the state and the generative generation of mankind meaning the production of more white americans uh and you know the furthering of of that labor pool of that pool of military labor in in particular um and then um you know, also the fact that he says and thereby undermined men's commitment to and conformity to stable family life, which I think, you know, and I'm, I'm not the first person, I think, to think of it this way. But like the, the sort of the the transmutation or the, the moving of the power of the state and the, the ideas of the state in terms of order and control into people's everyday lives through the family unit. You know, mm-hmm. and through the production of a very specific and particular form of family that operated and had certain rules and uh, understandings to it that underpinned American life. you know, were not just a matter of like again, they had the wrong ideas about men and women like was a functional aspect uh, of life that to bring it back once again that the prison was used to enforce mm-hmm. uh, so so those are some of the things um that I had in my margins, um,
1: Like I I, want to say yo men, like really, like you bought into this whole thing, like hook, line and sinker, like hook, line and sinker, right? Like the patriarchal authority, um, the, as he puts it, Republican benevolence, um, the worship, right? This unquestioned worship of family, you know, um, and, and family patriarchy in that sense as being part of social stability which again, so many of the policies that we're seeing that are being passed now are rooted in this kind of thinking, right? It's like anything that deviates from what they think of as the norm and the norm is the thing that they define as the norm, right? right? So the norm is not like the actual norm, right? (laughs) The norm is the thing that they say is the norm. So if you don't conform to that very narrow definition in this case of being, you know, of manhood, um, then you get, it can be deprived of your liberty, right? You could be deprived of your life as well. Right. Um, and you don't get access to any of the things because family status and, um, adhering to all of these different things didn't guarantee you citizenship it gave right. you access to being a citizen and I think that that's a qualitative difference here that we need to you know uh take stock of um I want to move on a little bit because I, I'm like oh, there's so much in in yeah
0: this I mean we could talk about this for days we don't have, people we're will read four it. Hour yeah.
1: class where you know, no. it's like we're, <laughs> we're workshopping this but um, you know other folks we encourage you to all do that if you like right yeah Um, I want to go back and talk a little bit about, um, the, uh, state coercion because he spends time, uh, in his chapter doing that. And I think that's important. Um, was there anything that stood out to you in this section? Um, and that begins on page
0: 25. You know, one thing I had underlined here was a conversation around, um, poverty, Mm -hmm. um, Let me see where I can start. I I think I'll just start reading this first paragraph here, and then Mm -hmm. maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it reads, this begins on page 24 and and goes on to 25. The American founders believed that criminal behavior on a prosperous continent would not be justified. Crime in class-divided Europe was understandable. There, William Bradford explained, an impoverished wretch had little or no opportunity to transform his labor into individual independence or a family estate. Lacking alternatives, he engaged in crime to support his family or better his children's prospects. However, poverty was different in America, where, quote, every man is or may be a proprietor, end quote, and his labor is bountifully rewarded. Here, even the poorest man could invest individual effort and economic opportunity to build a stake, start a family, and accumulate patrimony for the next generation. Because America was... I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. Because America was a land of economic opportunity, a man who turned to crime as a way to wealth had no legitimate excuses. The state had a duty to use its coercive apparatus to deter crime and punish criminals. And I would say that is just about... Every stump speech that I've heard right. in my entire life from either party, um, yep. yep and uh and yeah, I don't know what what, what do you think? What stands out to you? There? I
1: mean it's it's the kind of bootstrap mentality yep. that all you had to do was work really hard, um, and you too could make it in America right um it's the argument that you see people posting uh in the comment section on any article or anything yep. where you know people are talking about poverty or how it's really Learn difficult to, code. to, to <laughs> yeah. live you know in uh in in a covid world where you know people have lost their um their primary source of income or secondary and a lot often all their sources of income and yeah. you know the response is well just go get a job you know student loan debt relief it's like go get a job you're lazy you you live in america the land of opportunity and it's like this is not a well this is in the past kind of thinking this thinking persists right yes. and it's not just that it persists it's pervasive and it's woven into so many things right this is the cultural work right they were cultural workers not in the sense that we think of cultural work you know as abolitionists they were doing the cultural work of planting these ideas and getting them to germinate and people will fight people will die for these ideas they're like what do you mean you're going to take away our freedom we're not communists this is america right everything is great you should have to pay for health insurance Meanwhile, how many, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people have died um, as a result of this pandemic and all of the other things that that are currently, you know, happening. And that tends to be the response. So, you know, and this idea that they wanted, they adopted and adapted many of the Enlightenment thinkers' ideas, (laughs) ideologies, right? And then at the same time, they wanted to distance themselves from Europe. (laughs) Like, it's just like, okay, I need y'all to like pick a side. Like Yeah,
0: right.
1: (laughs) Or or you're going to have to get up a lot earlier to try to pull one over. Because for real, like you're going to say, well, you know, in Europe, it was just terrible over there. No one could make it. But here in America, look, it's great. Right. Yeah, it's great if you owned a plantation. Right. Yeah, like, right. It's not great if you were not of their class, right? So right. they don't see any of that, but they demonize um anyone that has a class consciousness and wants to, you know, fight that system and overthrow that system and, you know, get people the things that they need. That's that's been demonized. And they did such a phenomenal job. Like you got to give them props for at least doing that much, right?
0: Yeah, like, I state. mean Is there a more hegemonic idea in America than that one? I mean, and I mean, again, not I I hope this is not obnoxious, but I just think it's such an important thing to keep bringing back up when we're talking about this is that it's not just the idea that, you know, in America, every man can be a businessman or whatever. It's that, quote, the state had a duty to use its coercive apparatus to deter crime. In this case, crime being, you know, uh, uh lack of faithfulness to the idea that you too could be a businessman um, (laughs) and punish criminals. So it is also, uh, it's not just sort of the carrot of the, the sparkling ideology, but the stick of actually using the prison and the law enforcement. And I guess in this case, the cultural enforcement apparatus of the state to accomplish this. So when you see people, when you see the cops sweeping homeless camps, when you see, uh, you know, drug courts or other aspects of the court system being used to quote unquote, create programs for people who are unhoused or things like that. And they all flow back to this central idea. It's not a coincidence. Like this was designed around these same exact ideas.
1: Absolutely. And it gets, yeah. I, I think it, um, it gets more interesting when he introduces race into it. Like he's talking absolutely. about race, right? Because absolutely. Like, People assume that if we're talking about white people we're not talking about race. We need to stop that. We're talking about race, right? Yeah. when he talks about black people and he introduces um you know that uh, the way that black men um that these ideas were deployed against black people right. that things really take a shift, right? right? So they were deployed against white people and Poor white people, white men who were just like, "Yeah, f this," and you know, we're just gonna drink and hang out, and you know, that's what freedom means. Like, you know, what, what is freedom if I can't just have a beer and you know, tailgate? I don't know. It's like... <laughs> yeah. Oh god. No, absolutely. No, okay. I think we're that's hate mail. We're gonna get. No, that's
0: email. a crucial. That's crucial. I mean, pretty much any time in this episode that and and i i'm I'm gonna say this but i I think we also need to be explicit and talk about the difference uh in terms of the treatment and approach to to black people and women, but whenever we're talking about American or whenever we're talking about man, we're not just talking about what we think of as Americans and men today we are talking about citizenship as as entangled with race and gender um mm-hmm. so so absolutely 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 um
1: there's an interesting passage here and okay. I don't know if you um well I know you picked up on it because it was just like you know the um if you go to page 26 right Okay Um and this is where he's talking about the execution of um Major John Andre um who's yes. was a a British um spy uh, and he was hung for spying. So let me just read. Um, let me just read what he says here. The most notable case in which a criminal was executed only to redeem his manhood involved British Major John Andre, who was hung for spying during the Revolution. On his capture, Andre sent General George Washington a letter marked with quote, with a frankness becoming a gentleman and a man of honor and principle. End quote he asked to, quote, die as a soldier and a man of honor by being shot, not as a criminal, by being hung, end quote. Washington denied the request but praised Andre for exhibiting, quote, that fortitude which was expected from an accomplished man and a gallant officer, end quote. When a teary-eyed servant brought Andre a dress uniform for the scaffold, he ordered quote, leave me until you show yourself more manly, end quote. When Andre was hung, observers reported, quote, the tear of compassion was drawn from every pitying eye and beheld this accomplished youth, a victim to the usages of war, end quote. Alexander Hamilton was one of many Americans who memorialized Andre for having been, quote, a man of honor whose final request was to, quote, die like a brave man. I swear. I can't read that in any other (laughs) place. I feel like we should have, you know, some people come on and just do dramatic readings.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Which is even, like, more amazing. Uh, Like, why why make it boring? But, like, when I initially read that, when my students read that, right, I'm thinking one class for day, they were like, wait, what? What? So he thought that dying like a man, like a real man, was to get shot.
0: So and I and I think going back to what we were just talking about too about the racial dimension. Like later they'll talk about how, you know, like white men were afforded this ability to rehabilitate themselves and and sort of uh, reconnect with their honor, whereas black men got the noose. You know, like I think that dichotomy between being something being a person who's capable of achieving honor or whatever that bullshit is versus the criminal, you know, I think is a very enduring thought. And I think in some ways you can see this about uh, you know, this is like the this is like tough on crime. You know, like this is like it's the same idea of, oh, you know, you do the crime, you gotta do the time. You have to go through uh uh you know this painful agonizing experience in order to be redeemed. Um and I think that uh yeah I think that there's a lot of a lot of through lines there.
1: The difference is that with the victims of tough on crime policies.
0: Absolutely like, right.
1: There was no politician ever coming out and saying like as Benjamin Rush did uh right. you know, 10 years after um Andre was you know w- was uh hung for spying um there's no politician whoever comes out praising
0: yep absolutely
1: that's gone to prison right i mean it just it, it's the exact opposite they yep. find one isolated incident of the person who you know came back into society who was not quote unquote rehabilitated who did something and then they use that as an excuse to create more draconian crime or, or um to develop more draconian policies right to criminalize even more people right and to send more people to prison and to funnel more money into all of these you know different um mechanisms and institutions that are meant to for the management and control. So the idea that just one isolated, you know, white man <laughs> was praised because he wrote some letters <laughs> saying, you know, I want to yeah. go out like a real man. Um, and sh- he shared in the same. He shares in the same thinking about manhood as the people who are going to hang him. Right. right? That still doesn't save him. <laughs> yep. That still doesn't save him. They're like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, we can pray. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Right. You gotta
1: go. Right. Yep. Um, and I, I think that there's so many other ways to, to think about this, but um, and so many other paths that we could go down um and talk about. But I think that Benjamin Rush is is also um an interesting uh figure in this. Yeah. Uh, from this entire period in part because he um as the author says wanted to push emasculation um as far as possible right like right this he wanted that idea <laughs> he wanted to take it as far as he possibly could
0: i think you know we touched on this as well like the the last paragraph in this section Uh, critics also charged that most public punishments were counterproductive. So we're talking in this case about, you know, being flogged in public or the stockades or being forced to do cleaning in public and things like that. So critics also charged that most public punishments were counterproductive. On one hand, criminals presence in public spaces was dangerous. The penal scene became a vortex of viciousness, um, ominously seducing and contaminating the larger society, Philadelphia official Caleb Lowndes opposed punishments such as street cleaning and rope repairs because they afforded criminals an opportunity to engage the crowds of idle boys in indecent and proper conversation. Criminality was infectious and epidemic. It needed to be quarantined. On the other hand, the sight of convicts being whipped, pilloried, or weighed down by the ball and chain while doing public public labor sometimes evoked public sympathy, not antipathy. and spectators showered admiration on convict convicts who exemplified fortitude. Um, I don't know. I, I think I had underlined the, the section criminality was infectious and epidemic. It needed to be quarantined because to me, it evokes that sense of uh, again, like racial and gender purity uh, and sort of this idea of cleansing manhood and citizenship um, of these particular, you know, infectious and epidemic qualities of licentiousness or, uh, you know, not being white and male, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that that was another and, thing I had.
1: So I want to go, um, I want to talk about that, uh, that line here where he says, um, where C- Caleb Lowndes, uh, opposed punishments such as street cleaning and road repairs because they afforded criminals an opportunity to engage crowds of idle boys in indecent and improper conversation. And I'm like, what? <laughs> no, for real. Like, what are you talking about? Right. And it's it, but it that thinking is the same kind of thinking, whereas, you know, you can't let trans people use bathrooms. hmm. Right. That there's somehow something is going to happen. Right. Because even though he's talking about people that have been criminalized at that point um, and not specifically addressing, you know, trans people, um, it it traffics in the same logic.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It traffics in the same logic. Right. And in that way, none of this stuff is new but also this idea that criminality was an infectious thing and it was epidemic i mean the the choice of words here is really um interesting yeah, considering you know definitely. the times that we're living in but that's also how i feel like every politician since forever as far as i can you know go back um <laughs> has talked about you know, crime as an epidemic, as this thing that needs to be contained and quarantined, right? But not just contained and quarantined, because as we'll see um, a little bit uh, further down in the chapter, um, the proposal was to make sure that these places of containment were as far away exactly from the communities where the people came from to inflict maximum harm on them, right? Because it was the threat of removal from the community, right? To these faraway places, and not just faraway places, but places that were just as ominous and as dank and as horrible as their imagination would allow them to concoct, right? Yeah. And that was the thing, right? Like we talked about I talk about a lot of these things or all of these things. Policies are choices that are made by human beings, right? right? Policies aren't just things that drop out of the ether. But policies are also not just these things that happen in isolation from the ways that people are thinking, from religious, you know, thought or from other kinds of ideologies that, you know, that that exist that we need to think about these things um in a more layered way. Right. Yeah. Um,
0: I think if I could just really quickly chime in on something that you said me, there too, I me. think, and then we can move on. Cause I know that we're, we're going uh, long here, but you know, I think also when I was thinking about this section about the crowds of idle boys and protecting them from the, the criminals, uh, you know, cleaning the streets, it kind of reminds me as well about like, the the maintenance and and we're going to get into this when we're talking about then removing people to far away places but the maintenance of this idea of who that person must be and like sort of their places like a boogeyman you know in in society as a way to discipline others into acting a certain way um and you know i think you see that in an in a sort of turned upside down manner when you think about things like scared straight programs, right. Which I think are a way to, again, reinforce this cultural uh, identity or perception of who these people must be um, by putting, by orchestrating or choreographing the interactions that the public and particularly children uh, can have with them um, and sort of their understanding and you know, the, the lengths to which there can be any complexity in understanding, um, you know, somebody who has been criminalized. Um, so I just wanted to, I knew moving into this next section, I just thought that that was an interesting thing to to point out.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Okay. So this section is called redemptive state coercion. So now we're moving into the idea of redemption and rehabilitation, you know, as a primary function of prisons. And this section um, stood out to me as being, again, like constitutive of anti-Blackness and like a lot of our understanding, um, which again, like I think nowadays uh, the quote unquote like more offensive aspects of it have sort of been cleansed. And now we think about these things in a much more like careful way and and sort of avoid sort of like landmines of of their uh, racial importance and things like that. Um, or, or like their importance to our concept of race. Um, uh, but anyway, so this paragraph reads, by the way, this is on page 27 mm-hmm. The dominant norms of manhood were central to the idea of the penitentiary as an institution of deterrence, punishment, and rehabilitation. If a mature man was an independent agent of his destiny and master of his family, then imprisonment was a frightful punishment that deprived him of his manhood. Italian criminologist Cesare Beccaria put it this way, It is not the terrible but fleeting sight of a felon's death, which is the most powerful break on crime. Rather, it was the long-drown-out example of a man deprived of freedom. And this is the section I wanted to, to focus on. A male who was subordinated to his captors and separated from his family was less than a man. He suffered the psychic pain of knowing that he approached the dreaded condition of a slave. Benjamin Rush spread Beccaria's message in America. Writing against capital punishment, Rush argued the death of a malefactor is, sorry, the death of a malefactor. Is, a, this is like a Freudian slip, maybe the death of a malefactor is not so efficacious a method of deterring from wickedness as the example of continually remaining a man who is deprived of his liberty. Mm-hmm. So it is this idea of imprisonment as an attack on one's manhood and one's manhood uh, being conceived of as their proximity or distance from the state the condition of being a slave i.e. being black so Mm -hmm. to you know i read this as again one of these constitutive elements of the prison being a tool of anti-blackness not just a representation of the idea but an enforcement mechanism of anti-blackness um so that was one part of this section um that, that stood out to me. I don't know what you think.
1: Absolutely. Um, I want to pick up on that and read the next uh, a little bit here. Yeah. Don't. A man deprived of liberty was less than a man. He lost his independence and his family. Rush wanted to push emasculation as far as possible. He suggested that convicts be sent to distant, isolated penitentiaries. Let a large house be erected in a remote part of the state. Let the avenue to this house be uh, rendered difficult and gloomy by mountains or morasses. Let its doors be of iron and let the grating occasion by opening and shutting them be increased by an echo from a neighboring mountain that shall extend and continue a sound that shall deeply pierce the soul. Within soul piercing penitentiaries, um, older convicts would be isolated from young ones, and vicious criminals would be locked in isolation cells. Rush reasoned that isolation from family and friends is one of the severest punishments that can be inflicted upon a man because attachment to kindred and society is one of the strongest feelings in a human art. Fuck him. That's what I want to say. <laughs>
0: yeah, we're we're saying it. You heard it here first, folks. Fuck I'm Benjamin Rush.
1: Like, <laughs> no, for real. Like, oh god, it just, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, straight from you know that that's his pen. Those are his words. That's exactly what yeah. he was thinking, right? And so many of us, um, and we've talked about it on this episode, right? The difficulties that it's mostly women and mostly black women have with traveling to go see loved ones in prison, mostly men, right. That are incarcerated. The, the cost, the time, the energy, the emotional toll, right. That all of that takes from you. That stuff wasn't like an oopsie. Right. And this is why I, I like teaching. Uh, this chapter, but why I teach it early on when I'm teaching, you know, like an abolition 101, like intensive, um, you know, or a reading group, because it really does lay the foundations for so many other things, and it acts as a touchstone for later reading. So, if we're going to read our prisons obsolete down the line, you know, in a in a course and reading group or what have you, you can come back and say, oh, oh okay oh okay but that's why oh my goodness that's why right. that happened right um so all of this was by design it's it's not just because they said oh well where on a map can we no they deliberately picked the furthest you know places right. from people's you know from people's families and they moved them you know they they force them to go into confinement in these places. Um, that that's just yeah, fuck him.
0: I, uh, I think is. it's also to me like I completely agree. And I think what it makes me think of as well is like how preposterous it is to look at something like incarceration and think like, oh, you know, like if we just like paint clouds on the visiting room, you know, like that deals with some of the harshness here when, again, we're talking about like the fundamental decision and the reason to make that decision to isolate people far away and all of those other parts, you can't just like tweak at the outer edges of it to make it more palatable because that is just ignoring all of the other things that you just read through. Right. As, mm-hmm. as like a, a developmental, uh, aspect of the prison. Um, And, and, you know, one other section, a little further down the page, this one, I had lots of highlights on this page, page 27 is a real uh, barn burner in in this (laughs) chapter. But um, the first few paragraphs of this last chapter, I, I wanted to point out the idea that isolation unmans the heart implied that incarceration could be promising as well as painful. Isolated men suffered a degrading loss of manly freedom and dignity. Officials locked them up and treated them like dependent slaves or women or children. Simultaneously penitentiary officials provided criminals with a chance to regain their manly independence and patriarchal prerogative. So to me, a way to think about this is that uh, for a white male, a white American male in their concept to be subject to these conditions was essentially to have them, endure a simulation of what it's like to be anybody else in america you know like a level of violence neglect dehumanization i mean again when we're talking about children here um we're talking about people that are not seen as as people you know very by and large in our society but as as another uh you know uh form of being i guess if you want to call it that um, and I just think it, it was interesting, again, to to think about it in this sense that uh, the purpose of incarceration is, in in this thinking, is to, again, like, simulate those other class positions in American life in a very sort of dramatic and pointed way in order to sort of try to, like, scare somebody back into being a white dude, um, mm-hmm. as, like, understood yeah, by the state.
1: Proximity to whiteness, of course, right. some people was seen as better than. It didn't save you from any of the punishments that you would incur because you were not white and you could never access whiteness in that way, right. but it was the idea that you were more easily controllable if right. you conformed to the things that they wanted you to conform to, yeah. right? So, um Yeah, I think that entire passage there and the next part um, is also, I think, uh, really, really important. Um, Where he says Quaker reformers encouraged convicts to use prison solitude as an opportunity to search their souls, reorder their faculties, experience penitence, and cooperate with officials. Who taught, them to, who taught them to discipline their passions and learn useful trades in preparation for repatriation to society. Benjamin Rush rhapsodized at the prospect of a rehabilitated convict returning to his freedom and family. I already hear the inhabitants of our villages and townships running to meet him on the day of his deliverance. His friends and family bathe his cheeks with tears and joy. And a universal about his neighborhood is, this is our brother, was lost and is found, was dead and is alive. A redeemed prisoner was a born-again man. Oh, my God. Like, I was just like...
0: I mean, again, this this part of this sentence really stuck out to me. You know, you talk about searching your souls, reordering your faculties, blah, blah, blah. And then you kind of sneak in at the end and cooperate with officials who taught them to discipline their passions and learn useful trades in preparation for repatriation to society. I mean, this is about discipline and and about trying to reproduce a very particular kind of, of person to serve, uh, you know, a social and economic order not just about changing the thoughts around in your fucking head. Um,
1: And this is the thinking that underpins pretty much all re-entry for
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Right. That if you just listen to what they tell you to do, like what's your problem?
0: Yeah. Right.
1: Just do the thing. Right. Just listen to them. Just conform. Right. But look at what their intent, what the driver is for this, right? It's really it's not to make people whole, it's not to change them or anything else. Rehabilitation is thought to be this thing where it's like you gotta come out thinking, talking, acting, and behaving in the ways that we have narrowly defined and that we consider as quote unquote good or at least safe so that we know how to we know how to deal with you. Right, you don't do those things, right back. Yep. Right, you can come right back. Um, and yeah, I, I just, oh my God, so much. Um, let's let's fast forward here. I mean, I think that there's so
0: much. Yeah, we that, could it's, we could go it's on. Such
1: a rich, it's such a rich chapter. Um, there's so many ways that you could read this, analyze this, talk about it. Um, and again, uh, you know, really encourage folks to do that. Can we skip ahead to um, the section called uh, Black male incorrigibility? In actuality, the rehabilitation theory was applied to white men. Reformer optimists about male rehabilitation did not extend to the belief that Black convicts could regain manly freedom. The founders did not attribute to Black males a clear gender identity. They were seen as outsiders who lacked the manly ability to discipline their passions and the manly freedoms to govern, provision, and protect their families. S.A.S. uh, J. Hector St. John, um, and I'm not even gonna pronounce that last name because I have no idea how to pronounce it, American farmer was typical of Euro-Americans. He praised liberty and abhorred slavery, but he could not imagine including Africans among the rich mixture of immigrants who would become men within the new race called, quote unquote, Americans. Most white leaders saw blacks as outcasts from humanity. Revolutionary officials sometimes sought to humiliate disorderly white men by associating them with black men a duplicitous Tory might be publicly degraded by being handcuffed to a Black man for a period of time or being whipped by a Black man before being banished from the vicinity. What made this juxtaposition so humiliating as to render the Tory impotent was white America's belief that Black males were lower order creatures such as cattle. Not surprisingly then, the founders had difficulty imagining that the two races could live together in freedom and equality. Jefferson's well-known assertions about inherent racial differences were adopted by followers such as Tunis Wortman, who argued that interracial mingling and marriage were tantamount to a universal prostitution that would produce a motley and degenerate race of mulattoes. Other white leaders ranted against the infamy of such mongrel coalition, condemned the disgraceful and unnatural evil of the interracial unions, and proclaimed that a free nation of black and white people would produce a body politic as monstrous and unnatural as a mongrel half-white man and half-negro. Yo, poof, oh. <laughs> oh,
0: God. disgusting. Oh.
1: And Um, just recently, was it Mississippi? Right. That is trying to ban interracial marriage. So they want to go back to... They want to go back to that time.
0: Yep. Yep. Uh, And then it says further down on the page, but related, a white rapist suffered a redeemable abuse of natural passion, but a black male's character was defined by irredeemable lust. Right. So I think... I mean again, this is what i what we were alluding to in the very beginning of the episode. I think this understanding of the new race called American, you know immigrants who could become men within the new race called american I mean a very succinct way to pack in again the the racial gendered and legal dimensions of what we're talking about when we talk about American, you know mm-hmm. um Uh, And again, which justified the entire system of coercion and punishment (laughs) that we are currently the largest purveyor of on the planet uh, and yet vociferously defend as somehow necessary to our safety um, and order. Um, And again, you know, what made this juxtaposition so humiliating as to render the Tory impotent? was white America's belief that black males were lower order creatures such as cattle. So cuffing them to a black man, uh, was a, was a way to humiliate them. Um, going back to this idea of, of punishment as a way to like, sort of temporarily simulate, uh, you know, the threat of losing your white manhood, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, was to do these things. Um, Horrible.
1: Well, and it, I think this also speaks to one of the counter arguments that we often hear um, is that, you know, people will say, uh, we know who people are. Um, well, there's white people that go to White prison,
0: people, yeah.
1: Right? <laughs> there's white people that go to prison too. So what are you talking about? Right. But it's not at the same rates or for the same purposes, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the specific harm that was caused or what's on the books in terms of the criminal legal definition, right? I'm talking about the function of that, right? That it's, the idea is that anybody can go to prison, right? Anybody can can be criminalized, but we're going to tie you to literally tie you to the- to Black people in this way, right? So physically and metaphorically speaking, to make you less than, right? Right. So that you are treated as subhuman, right? And I mean, that's a really insidious, horrendous, um, and yet powerful idea that continues to play out um, in our society. And as you pointed out earlier, people will defend that. Um let's try to wrap it up and go to okay. the the last um the last section
0: here it talks about two-tiered criminal justice. Um there was one part I don't know if we'll include this, but I just ahead. wanted to, well, this this struck me particularly because of the way that uh the term and sort of the cloudy umbrella of quote-unquote wokeness is thrown around right now particularly by like the Republican right. So there's a section that reads For many founders then, black males, and this is on uh, page 30, for many founders then, black males could not be men because they lacked human status, manly independence, and family mastery. Worse, these hypersexual coarse creatures carried a grudge against white society that threatened to escalate into racial violence. Uh, Jefferson spoke out against slavery, but he opposed combining emancipation with integration, less free blacks act on 10,000 recollections of the injuries they have sustained. Now, to me, that sounds a lot like what people are gesturing at when they are saying like, all these fucking woke curriculums in my school, you know, this idea of the grudge against whiteness and what we might unleash if we recognize uh what does he say Ten thousand recollections of the injuries they have I'm tell
1: my child that they are racist
0: exactly yeah like <laughs> I, I mean i'm just like this like what the fuck this is literally uh you know but but again like we just changed the terms around to get around the fact that you know you can't say it in this exact frank way in 2023 uh, you have to call it wokeness and be kind of like weird about what that means, and you know what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I don't know if we want to keep that in or not. But that was just one part in this section that I had like a big red alert on. Um, anyway, we can go to the to the last. Section. Yeah.
1: No. You know what? Can you do? You mind reading the the last paragraph? No, I think that's a really important point.
0: Sure. The in this section, the last paragraph. Yeah. In this okay. section. How did the founders hope to control incorrigible black males? First, the founding generation was more likely to prosecute, convict, and hang blacks for their crimes. Traditional capital and corporal punishment was by no means obsolete or exceptional for black male criminals. Second, blacks who were not executed or tortured were likely to be sold away from their families and banished from the vicinity. Finally, many black criminals were sent to prison. In the 1790s, for example, Blacks constituted one-third of the prisoner population in Philadelphia's Walnut Street Penitentiary. For Black convicts, however, the penitentiary was not a substitute for traditional state coercion or an innovative institution for rehabilitation. Instead, it was one more option for detaining, disciplining and controlling a select population of men whose putative passions and licentious behavior were believed to be incurable wow. sound familiar <laughs> i mean i mean again it was not about using state coercion to discipline it was not about an innovative institution for rehabilitation it was about management and control of a population who could not be cured uh, of their lack of whiteness,, Whew.
1: I know we gotta wrap we okay. we're gonna wrap this up only because I'm,
0: I'm podcasting like in the dark where, right now
1: where my my anger is <laughs> going. it's like yeah. I know I, I've watched the sun like <laughs> shift over there. I know, how does it look over here because I'm not even seeing, okay, I have some lights. You see my little twinkle
0: yeah, right? no you you're well lit. I look exactly. like I'm creeping um, out of a closet or something but- over here, <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. Okay, so this uh final section, what are like one or two points you want to
0: make? Okay. So um I think I'll read the first paragraph here. Okay. Um this is begins on page 30 and it's the section two-tiered criminal justice. The American founders considered themselves republicans who defended liberty as a basis for men to act virtuously. After the revolution, however, most founders worried that many men were investing their liberty in licentiousness that resulted in an epidemic of crime or an unprecedented crime wave. Again, like, where, where have you heard that one? Um, the founders' first line of defense against criminality was to encourage males to adhere to the dominant norms of manhood. Young men were enjoined to fortify individual independence with self-discipline settle down into patriarchal family responsibilities and become law-abiding citizens. The founders' next line of defense was to apply the dominant norms of manhood to the criminal justice system. They developed innovative ideas and institutions for deterring punishment and crime and for rehabilitating criminals. Um so I I think I underscored this uh you know again not to be a broken record but to say that it was not just the idea of encouraging people to adhere to norms, but to use the next line of defense, which was to apply the dominant norms of manhood to the criminal justice system. Like that mm-hmm. was the hammer, uh, in forging the the kind of person that the founders wanted, uh, in, in their society. Yeah. I don't know. Um, that section stood out to me. I don't know if there's, um, if there's more that you want to say on that or anything else in this section or, or tying the piece together.
1: Yeah. I think that uh, as a follow-up to that, the very next, um, paragraph, I won't read the whole thing. I'll just point out the the two main points, uh, that, uh, the author makes here he talks about the two major principles that American reformers, um, adopted. And the first one he talks about is the certainty of punishment. Right. Um, not its severity, was the best deterrent, right, for criminal behavior. I'll say that again, that punishment, not its severity, was the best deterrent for criminal behavior. And American elites, he says, use this principle to justify replacing traditional punishments such as hanging, branding, and whipping with ostensibly lesser penalties such as incarceration. I mean, the idea that Incarceration is a lesser penalty. I mean, yeah, we understand that death is bad, um, but it, this is why many were considered against, you know, death by incarceration or um, LWAP sentences, life in prison without the possibility of parole, or like that. That's not a better punishment. It's not right. Like th- this logic is is flawed. The second point that he makes there is that rehabilitation, not retribution, was the proper goal of punishment. Civic leaders did not support prisoner isolation because it was painful, although they believed it was painful, but because it provided prisoners with opportunities for rehabilitation. The penal road between lesser penalties and rehabilitation was paved with manhood. Convicts were stripped of manhood as a motivation for them to reform, and reformed convicts were promised renewed manly freedom and dignity. The outcome was critical to the republic. William Bradford explained that when the offender becomes humbled and reformed, society instead of losing gains citizens.
0: Yeah. I feel like this is, you know, it dovetails with what we were saying at the very, very beginning of this conversation for me, where it's like the the penal road between lesser penalties and rehabilitation was paved with manhood, right? Like all of this was situated around this idea of making and recreating this concept of manhood, again, as tied into whiteness and citizenship and, and gender. And now I feel like, The the penal road between lesser penalties and rehabilitation that we are on right now is still very much paved with manhood, but we don't talk about it that way. So we think that it's paved with something else, you Mm -hmm. know, but all of the values that point back to that manhood that like that's where they came, like all of the values that we consistently say are what paves the road. Uh, for reform uh, for reformers, we would never say that they are to uphold manhood or whatever, you know, like nobody from any of these major nonprofits is going to say that's why they're engaged in a reform project. But that is literally where, like, where these fucking values come from.
1: And that this, concept. Is, why, this yeah. is why black feminists have pointed out that you cannot talk about uprooting, you know, or getting rid of any of these systems if you're not also addressing the patriarchy, misogyny, right. male supremacy, and all of this problematic shit, right? Because if that's not part of that conversation, then you're not actually doing the work. What you're yeah. doing is smoke and mirrors, right? Yep. And little sleight of hand to try to really distract, which is why it's so difficult, right? So when people talk about, um, and I don't know who these people are that I keep referring to, um, you but- know who you are. <laughs> we know you're out there. <laughs> <laughs> they don't listen. They don't listen to our podcast. They they don't. Thank God. Um, I don't want. Don't bring that on and us. Don't right? listen. Um, Turn yeah. it off. <laughs> But um, yeah, I lost my train of thought when, you know, <laughs> it's <laughs> <Okay, laughs> getting a, a little goofy now at the end,
0: but. um, I but think, I you know, what start. you were saying about, about dismissing that stuff and sort of in, in the process of doing so mystifying what we're actually talking about is the consistent sleight of hand throughout at least modern history, right? Like mm-hmm. at least to the point where, you know, probably, um, you know, in um in uh, like the Reconstruction period and the Civil Rights Movement, it becomes more difficult to talk about these things the way that they had always been talked about and justified for the same reasons they had always been justified for. And so the methods didn't change, but the the reason for them became more and more convoluted. And at yeah. the same time, in doing so, I think, became more hegemonic, right? Like, It became more inscrutable, harder to pin down what exactly the fuck we're doing with this institution and its role in our society and and our economy. And um, I think that is sort of like the inescapable truth of all of this and and our critiques of the reform project, right? Because, again, it is not just that the thoughts were separate from... Like, the, the praxis, like, we're talking about the actual praxis of racial capitalism here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you cannot just say like, oh well, we changed the reasons why we're we're engaging in these actions, or we're gonna keep engaging in these actions. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work that way.
1: Exactly. I mean it's like the the thing that I keep coming back to and um is you know uh like football, right? Like sports mm-hmm. in general. But you know, um specifically and it's like I'm I'm not a fan uh and you know Whatever, no hate, I'm happy if you're happy, whatever um <laughs> <laughs> it's just you know I, I watched because one of my sons um was watching uh the Super Bowl, and it, oh God. that's what I was thinking about when we're reading all of this, like these displays of and yeah. militarism, right like it, that's the cultural work right there, right the flyover, the flags and uh. Like, if if we saw this happening anywhere else, we would be like, what is going yeah. on here? Like, it's really, it's really creepy. But when you analyze that through these lenses, right, and you think about it in this way, it makes it easier to make the connection between, oh, okay, so this is why Colin Kaepernick never got a job in the NFL, mm-hmm. um, and why he never will, Um but then you saw players kneeling and that was okay. Like now right? It's cool, right? Because they have de-radicalized that, right. that gesture, right? Like that's, that's gone. But all of these other things. So we're not, we're not talking about the, these notions of manhood and patriarchy and misogyny in the, it, well, I mean, they weren't talking about patriarchy and misogyny in that way. They were <laughs> right. making it a positive thing, right? They were making it a right. virtue um and that's what a lot of these displays do as well especially in sports it's like like this is virtuous like how can you be against this thing look we're uplifting you know these black men and whatever and it's like then I'm watching them go out there and play with like hurt limbs and everything right. And it's like you know in my head I'm thinking Get out there and play. Like, we, you know, we're <laughs> <laughs> just yelling. It's like, get out there and play for our entertainment, right? Um, and yeah. it's like, be you know, everything else be damned. But then you're like, okay, let's think about all of the other things that are also currently happening, right? Um, it, it's I don't see that as disconnected from any of um, the the horrible healthcare policies that are being passed in this country that impact um you know uh people uh, that impact reproductive
0: right. rights Right.
1: Let me put it that way. Um that impact reproductive rights. None of it like these things are not disconnected, right? So when we think about I'll I'll just I'll leave it at that. I don't know if you want to
0: Yeah, I I think just the final thoughts I have is, you know, I think you also see it in um, not just the enforcement of a gender binary in terms of manhood, but also we see it right now um, with, you know, TERFs, right? With, with, like, people who believe they are feminists uh, who, you know, are defending a certain conception of womanhood um, from transness, right? I think there is a similar it's it's different than what you're talking about right like it's not like a one-to-one comparison Mm -hmm. but i think there's ways in which we can also see some of these ideas mutating and and sort of a form of um i guess like a predatory inclusion uh of of other people in the maintenance of of their gender identities um and you know and again of families and of um you know like policing people's ability to access hormones or uh to um uh access counseling um you know if they're experiencing gender dysphoria as a child i think all of those also tie back into the state's coercive power uh and the use of the criminal justice system to back up the norms um that the that the state would like to maintain um uh to do those things um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's like a good place to end this conversation, right? like I mean, I, I it's like
1: it as I mean this is why I use it as an entry point. Yeah, yeah, yeah talking about abolition. I think that you know we could keep talking about it, but I, I'm gonna make a stop um yeah, and I, need to it, eat. I encourage. Folks, to to read the chapter, um, I think it's a really good one. Um, I'm happy to share the other readings that I included um, in that class if uh, if folks are interested in that. Um, but yeah, we we'll, we plan to do more of these kinds of conversations where we pick something that we've read, have been reading, um, or have wanted to read and discuss mm-hmm. together uh, for a while, and um, we'll share. And we'll share those um conversations with uh with y'all and uh yeah yeah,
0: great, yep, let us know what you think and thank you guys for listening.